hope the Lord gives you reasons. In fact, that will be our closing thought, Lord willing, in the message today, fresh reasons to praise the Lord. And you may think uh, it will not finish that way in the message. Lord willing, it will. Let's see what the Lord has in store. We're going to Matthew chapter 14. Would you join me? Thank you for being here. Matthew chapter 14. Uh, it has filled in since uh, 1030, so I don't know where some of you came from since 1030, but thank you for coming. <laughs> and thank you for those that are watching online. I know that's uh, quite a few folks, so thank you for being so faithful in your giving, in your communicating, prayer, uh, viewing, and we want to be faithful to you as well. And thank you for all of you who are able to be here this morning. Matthew chapter 14, we want to hit 12 verses, Lord willing, this morning. Thought about going ahead and including the last three but there just wouldn't be time for that. And so hopefully we'll combine the last three verses of this chapter in with the first nine next, of chapter 15 next week. We'll see how that goes, all right? Uh, because I don't know each week who was here last week and is able to recall quickly where we left off, and then knowing that it has been a week since we have studied this particular book, would you join me just for a moment to get our minds reset about what happened in the previous verses because that will lead us into reading our text. Always reading the text is the most important part of the whole service that we do. Um, well, in our worship of the Lord. And your giving and your fellowship and your exhorting. But other than that, it is all really important. Come to church on purpose, all right? Don't just, don't just meander in and meander out and do things on purpose. So in a minute, we're going to read the text. So last week, here's what we noted. Get your minds ready. There were four dynamics that were converging. Four things. Refresh your mind. Number one, Jesus had just been informed that John the Baptist had been beheaded by Herod. John's disciples came and tell Jesus. Now listen, lots of people died in that day, and the Lord loves all people. But on a human level, Jesus is a man. On a human level, this affected him because this is someone that was very dear to him personally at that time on earth. Jesus has a great loss. Number two. Herod, who killed John, thinks Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. And he thinks Jesus' miracles because John has all this new power because he's been resurrected from the dead. And so now Herod, reports are going to start coming in that Herod is now going to turn his venom that he had killed, Herod, killed John the Baptist. He's going to now turn it against Jesus because he thinks Jesus is John. Third dynamic. Jesus had just recently sent his disciples out on a mission journey, a mission, a short-term mission trip, and he had given them power. Catch this. Let this sink in. I didn't really hit on this a lot because Matthew just kind of threw it out there because Matthew was one of the 12. They went out in groups of two, and the disciples, they're casting out demons. They're healing people. Everybody that came, they healed them, and all the people who were possessed of devils, they cast them all out. And they were teaching about the kingdom and to repent. And now they here's the third dynamic. They've just come back to Jesus. It's very successful ministry, but it was an exhausting ministry. Fourth dynamic. The time period that we're reading is around the Passover. This is the last Passover before Jesus will be crucified on a cross the next Passover. So it's right around eight, nine, ten weeks from right now. So like if you want to advance the time of the year, go to about the end of March, early April. That's the time period here. Jesus has one year left in his earthly ministry. And more than the previous year and a half, two years, he's going to go much more private and start investing in his disciples so that they will become the apostles of the church. He needs to prepare them. Those are the four dynamics. 
He's just lost John. Herod's out to kill him. His disciples are exhausted, and Jesus wants to start putting more private investment spiritually into his disciples. And so all of that results, again, he hears about John, and Jesus' response is to withdraw and retreat. You guys are tired. I'm tired. Let's go take a retreat. I've lost someone dear to me. Let's go take a retreat. He's out to kill me. I'm not running from him. I'm not scared from him. I'm avoiding an an untimely encounter. So he's going to go out of Herod's jurisdiction to another area. And guys, I'm going to start investing in you. We're going to start spending more time privately. Here's the problem. As they start getting to their pre-planned desolate place for vacation, somebody in the crowd overheard it. And the crowds walked around the lake and the crowds were waiting on them when they arrived. And rather than just saying, guys, let's keep on going. We're not dealing with this. The Lord hits the shore And he teaches this crowd. He heals them. And he ultimately feeds them. And when I say a crowd, you know the number. 5,000 males. The estimate being anywhere from 10, 15, 20. Some even guessed as many as 25,000 people. Jesus fed them, literally fed them, with five little pita loaves and a couple of small fish. And he fed them till they were absolutely full. And they gathered the fragments. And now what? Verse 22. Here we go. Having just fed the thousands of people, verse 22 tells us, Matthew's version of the life of Christ, immediately he, Jesus, catch this word, it's a strong one, made the disciples get into the boat and go. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. You guys are going to go. Are you coming with it? Nope. You go ahead. I'll catch up later. He made the disciples get into the boat, get into the boat and go before him to the other side. So from your perspective, here's the lake of Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee. They're up on this northwest, nope, northeast corner, and they're going to go toward Capernaum or Gennesaret. They're going to head between these two areas. They're heading this direction across the Sea of Galilee. Verse 22 again, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. You go to the western side. While he dismissed the crowds. You want us to help you? Nope, nope, nope. You leave. I'll dismiss the crowds. After he had dismissed the crowds, you guys got to go home. Everybody get out of here. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. So watch. There's three movements. The disciples are going by boat. The crowds are being dispersed, and Jesus is going up on a mountain to pray. When evening came, now it's already been evening, but remember, evening for them was six hours. It could be anywhere from 3 p.m. to 9 p.m. The feeding of the thousands occurred probably somewhere before the 6 p.m. hour. Now we're advancing between the 6 and 9 p.m. The Bible says when evening came, he, Jesus, was there, meaning on the mountain, alone. He was there alone. But, here's the idea, here's the time frame. While he was there alone, he's going to be up on the mountain for hours alone. So verse 24. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land. So they're advancing. I'll go ahead and tell you what I'll tell you, repeat in a few minutes. Another gospel tells us they're about three to four miles away. They've made about three to four miles. Verse 24 again. Matthew, who was in this boat, says, But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves. 
It's being beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Here's the picture. They're going this direction, but the waves are against them, and the wind is against them. And then the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. He, Jesus. So they've made it three or four miles. They're being beaten by the waves, and the wind is contrary to them. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Whoa, whoa, fella, whoa! Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Take heart. It is I. It's a ghost. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, and by the way, don't read too much into that word if. It literally, in the sense here, what it means is, since it is you, he's not like doubting, is it really? No. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat. I have thought about that. There are ways to get out of the boat. Did he, I don't know, let's say the sidewall, let's say they're, they're here in their seats and the sidewall's up like this. Did he just, you know, kind of like a, you know, a Navy SEAL, just kind of peel over the side? Or did he stand up, put his foot up there and take a big jump? Or did he get up here, get on the edge, kind of ease off, get some sure footing? And I don't, I don't know. They should have told us more than this. But anyway, verse 29, he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. And that's our, t- oh, wait, there's some more verses. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> there it is. Okay. Chapter's closed. Well, look at it again. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, here's another miracle, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Truly you're the Son of God. And they worshipped him. Would you notice with me three things this morning? Number one, out of verses 22 and 23, we notice the prominence of prayer in Jesus' life. Not a lot of people that I read after this week spent a lot of time on this. Uh, I'm going to spend just a few minutes because I, I couldn't miss it. I mean, it just it jumped at me immediately, and I don't know why others just kind of hit it in passing. To me, it's one of the main points. Obviously, that's why I've made it a main point. The prominence of prayer in Jesus' life. But before I touch on that, let me teach for a moment. Can we do that? You ready? Why does Jesus dismiss the crowds? And send away the disciples. Again, this strong word. 
Lord, why did you send them away? And why did you dismiss the crowds so authoritatively? I'm going to offer you three reasons, and they're important, all right? Three reasons the Lord got rid of everyone, and he sends the disciples. The order is they leave first, then he dismisses the crowds, and then he exits the arena. Why did this happen? Number one, put this in our minds. Here's why. The crowds sought to make him king. Now, Matthew doesn't cover this. Every gospel has a little bit different uh, aspect that they add to it, so we have to put them all together. I'm not going to read each one, but I'm going to invite you, after you write that, flip over and put you a little marker in John 6. So actually, flip over to John 6. Hopefully, you've got a Bible, uh, either a physical one in your hand or some kind of electronic version of the Bible. Go to John chapter 6. If you have a physical Bible, maybe put you a little marker because you may come back there in just in a little bit. These are the only two places we'll be going this morning. Look at John chapter 6. We're going back before this scene to see why would I say that the crowd wanted to make him king? And why does this mean he needs to disperse the crowd? And could I even add, is the descending away of the disciples part of this dynamic? Look at verse 14. So he's just fed the 5,000 males, thousands more people. They've gathered the fragments, put the fragments of the food, it filled up 12 baskets. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. This is the prophet who's to come into the world. What are they referring to? Moses had said in the book of Deuteronomy, there's a prophet that's going to come after me, and he's going to have some things that's a lot like me. When he comes, recognize him and obey him. Be looking for the prophet. This crowd's concluding, this is the prophet. Verse 15. Perceiving then that them that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They're coming to these conclusions. Jesus is perceiving what they're getting ready to do. Those guys, particularly, could we say safely, the 5,000 males are really starting to get worked up. They're ready to take Jesus, and they're ready at, at Passover time. Let's march down to Jerusalem, and we're going to take, we're going to defeat the Herods, and you are the king, and we know it for sure, and they're going to make him the king. The Lord's perceiving this. His answer is, dispels them, and he withdraws. Could that be why he sends the disciples away so quick? Hey, guys. Bring it on in. But what about, nope, nope, nope. Somebody else is going to, bring it on. Tell him to come. Let's go. Hey, you guys, bring it in. We're done. You're done. Get on the boat. You're not going with, get on the boat and get on out of here. Maybe there's a dynamic. It's about to get a little hairy here. There are tens of thousands of people getting worked up, ready to do something. It could get out of control, right? Things can get out of control. But the Lord will have none of it. There's a different dynamic here, and it's Jesus. He's the key. When he speaks, he speaks with authority. Maybe he sends them away because the last thing they need is to get caught up in this enthusiasm because it won't be long. They're going to start wondering which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom. Who's going to sit on your right hand and sit on your left hand? They're totally missing the main reason Jesus came, and we know that he came to die on a cross. And here's the key. He will not be deterred from that. This crowd, give them credit. Unlike Herod, Herod went 0 for 3 previously in this chapter. This crowd went 3 for 3. What you just did was a sign. Number two, you are the prophet. Correct and correct. Number three, you're the king of Israel. Correct, correct, correct. The problem is he doesn't need you to make him king. He will make himself king. But until then, he has a date with a cross a year from now, and he will not be deterred from it. Y'all got to go home. I don't know what he said, 
But when Jesus spoke with authority, it worked. They're getting worked up. There's an energy that's about to get out of control. And the Lord says, hey, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. My disciples have gone to the other side. They've gone to the western shore, and I'm going to go with them. You've been taught, you've been healed, you've been fed. I got something I got to do. You got to go home. But what? No, no, no. You go home for now. I'll see you soon. Go, go on, go on, go on. And then he heads up the mountain. And I imagine as he gets to, but, but, uh, uh, go on. I got something I got to do. And they're gone. We're done. Number two. Why does he send them away? Because Christ had a lesson in faith to teach his disciples. In order to teach it, they needed to make a very specific voyage. He has a lesson in faith to teach. And then number three, do not let this be diminished. Jesus wants time to be totally alone to pray. So my message today is not primarily about prayer. Mike alluded to it earlier. Can I challenge you just for a moment? I believe if we were to go back in time and interview the people who lived with the Lord and said, tell us about Jesus, like literally, essentially, what kind of man is he? I think they would say, he's a man of power. He's essentially a man of, of authority. But I think if you press them and said, okay, what is he really all about? They would say, I'll tell you what he essentially is. Jesus is essentially a man of prayer. Yes, he has power and authority. But he has power in and of himself. But his power and authority seems to come from this prayer time. He is all about prayer. Twenty-five times the New Testament alludes to Jesus praying. If we include Hebrews and Romans who tell us that even now the men, while I'm preaching and while you're listening, the Lord Jesus Christ is interceding for us. He is, he, he is all about prayer communicating with the Father. And so what I want to propose, I've run some numbers because of the time frame, and hopefully it'll become a little more clear in a minute. I'm going to offer to you that Jesus is up on this mountain totally alone for probably six, seven, eight, maybe nine hours. Now hear this sentence. I've typed it on purpose. These six to eight hours with Jesus on the mountain allowed God to do what they had done for all of eternity. You say, Jeff, you kind of misspoke. Your grammar's kind of poor. Then, no, 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 no. Hear it again. These six to eight hours with Jesus on the mountain allowed God to do what they had done for all of eternity. There is only one God, but God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And Jesus is the Son incarnate in flesh. And he's talking to the Father, but he's seeking time alone. We don't know what happens in that inner council of God, but up on that mountain, literally, that was God on the mountain, and that's God talking with God, talking with God, and we don't know. That's just the inner council, and we don't get in on it. But, man, it was a delight for the Lord. He was longing for this time. You boys got to get out of here. All of you folks got to go home. I've got something I must do. I've lost a dear friend. I have much work to do. I'm staring at a cross a year from now. I must spend time with my Father and the Holy Spirit. So here's the kicker. And I pray that the Lord would use this as he knows needs fit this morning. Here's the crazy thing. Think with me. If anyone has ever lived who need not pray, if anybody could ever get by without praying, it has to be Jesus. I mean, he is God. He's God. Who are you talking to up there? You're God. What are you doing? 
If anyone need not pray, it is Jesus. And yet, let this sink in. The one who needs prayer the least wants prayer the most. He wants prayer the most. And so we learn this thought. Jesus insists on making time alone to talk to his father as a top shelf priority. Now that tells me something. I want to give you two quick conclusions on that thought. If Jesus insists on making time alone to talk with God, his, authority, his, his priority and his intention, then what does that teach us? I want to offer you two ideas. Number one, I started with the word we, but we may be too general. Someone may put the right emphasis and priority on this, so let me just say it this way, right? If that's the way Jesus treats prayer, then I conclude, and I'll conclude myself in it. I'll include myself in it. Many of us place too little priority on private prayer time with God. Many of us place too little priority and value on private time with God. And the second thought is near it. I really want you to get this one. Even Jesus had differing levels of prayer. I want you to get that and think with me, please. Go home and think about this one. Even Jesus has differing levels of prayer. Jeff, what do you mean? Jesus is always in communion with the Father. The Bible says by the power of the Spirit, he always did those things which were pleasing to the Father. So he's constantly, if anyone ever prayed without ceasing, it's Jesus. Let this sink in, guys. Jesus is always in communion with the Lord, and yet he's wanting private time to talk to his Father. Well, you're already talking to the Father all that, but I want private time. Jeff, what are you supposed to learn there? What is grace for you supposed to learn there? Here's what I learned. You guys have heard me talk about three kinds of prayer. One we do on Wednesday nights, usually. Corporate prayer. We're commanded to do that. Another is this what we call daily fellowship. Right? Daily fellowship. Talking to the Lord. Communicating as we're going through our day. But then there's this private, what Jesus calls in Matthew chapter 6. Prayer closet kind of prayer. So there's very... Three very different dynamics. Private, here's our words we always use. Solitude, stillness, silence. Just me and God talking to the Lord. That's private. Then there is the daily fellowship going through life. I can't tell you how many people. It's quite a few who've told me their main prayer times is their morning drive. Got a long drive and that's their time to talk to the Lord. Others, I have heard, there's shower time. Shower time, that's when I talk to the Lord. Can I say something? That's awesome. That's awesome that you're talking to the Lord while you're driving. And that's awesome that you're talking to the Lord while you're showering. And others will say, oh, I talk, my, my prayer time, I talk to the Lord while I'm cooking, while I'm doing laundry. Boy, I love mowing the grass because when I'm mowing, mowing the grass, that's my prayer time. Could we all agree that that is great, that is daily fellowship, but as great as that is... We have to acknowledge and admit and be honest that God cannot possibly have my full attention, my full concentration while I'm taking a shower and while I'm driving and while I'm mowing the grass and while you're, I don't cook, while you're cooking and while we're folding laundry. And you say, well, while I'm walking from this side of the plant to the other, it's a big plant. That's my time. I know I have a certain time to do that. And that's my prayer time every day. That is wonderful. That's daily fellowship. That is not this. And unfortunately, many Christians their prayers go no further than daily fellowship. That's the extent. Jesus sought solitude, silence.
stillness. It was a priority. He had to have it. Number two. Now into the main story that we're familiar with. Let's notice, secondly, the power of Jesus over our fears. The power of Jesus over our fears. So to be true to the text, I first must say, guys, this must be received as a literal event that really happened. This is a real event literally happened. But we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that the Lord has some pretty clear and obvious, more than I have noticed and more than I will have time to deal with, but he has some very clear spiritual lessons that come out of this real event. So the priority, the number one thing we need to see is this is a real event and look at what Jesus did. But in it, there are spiritual lessons for us. Notice verse number 24. Look at it again. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land. Now follow me. I'm going to offer some information from some other, other gospels without taking the time to flip there. I already said a while ago, John chapter 6 verse 19 says that by this time they had rowed. They had rowed. They're not using sails. They've rowed three to four miles. Let that sink in. Three to four miles. So I'm going to run some numbers that we'll make more clear in a minute. Counting the time to disperse. So they're gone. Then Jesus disperses the crowd. And then as he goes up the mountain, if we add that time in to how long we think he was up on the mountain, then he, these guys have been rowing in the sea between seven to nine hours. Seven to nine hours. If we were to go to the lowest of that and the highest, here's what I mean. If we say they've gone three miles in nine hours, then we know they're moving about a third of a mile an hour. A third of a mile an hour. So every hour, about a third. So after three miles, one, after three hours, one mile. After nine hours, about three miles. If it's more toward the three and a half, four miles and more down into the like eight hours, then we're looking at maximum of like half a mile an hour. So they're traveling, their average speed is somewhere around a, half, a third to a half mile an hour. But catch, without looking, let me read you a phrase from John 6, 18. Catch it. They leave, and here's four words from John 6, 18. The sea became rough. That tells me something. The sea became. They're going this direction. Watch. They leave. The sea is not yet rough. We know that at some point, they end up in the middle, about three to four miles out. But along the journey to get to here, it's the sea became rough. We don't know if it was at this point or at this point or at this point. Here's what I'm saying. Most of their progress has been made early on, and now they've hit a point where the wind is severely against them, and the waves, as the wind is blowing this way, it's blowing the waves against them. It's beating against them. They're hardly going anywhere. I wasn't there that night, but in mind, I'm picturing something like this. They're in a little swell, and so they're row, 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 and then here comes, and they do this, right? And it does that. Give it a go, 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 go. I'm making progress. I was here a while ago. Now I'm here. Let's go, 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 go. Left side, forward, move. They're in it. They're getting tired. They're getting frustrated. They're struggling. There's a lesson. Could we all agree, especially those of us who've lived a little longer, sometimes in life, the circumstances of life, 
propel you. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed? It is a blessed thing to be in that time and know it. Some are in it and they don't know it and they don't give thanks to the Lord. It is such a blessing. It's just like God is showing his favor. God is working. You're, you're, you're working in the power of the Holy Spirit. God is moving. And you're just progressing along in life. Things are good with you physically, spiritually, at the home, at work. This is, just, this is awesome. Christian life is great. You're, it's like being on the road. And you see a red light ahead. And there's some people stuck at the red light. But by the time you get there, it's green. And the traffic's slow. And you catch that one green. And the next one. And the next one. It's just like, this is awesome. Everything's going my way. That happens. But we all know there are these other days where we don't see a red light up ahead. It's green, but by the time we get there, you know the worst one, it's yellow when it's been yellow just enough. I can't get through. And so you get to sit through the whole red light. And the next one, and the next. And sometimes it's just like the same amount of effort seems to be producing nothing where before it just it was just blessed. This was awesome. So as these guys are wave hopping, <laughs> I wonder, did any, I know they had to think it, did anybody verbalize, why is this happening? <sighs> why is this happening? It literally may be someone listening right now. This is where you are. You're where they're at. What is going on? Why is this wind against us? <laughs> why are we going nowhere? Here's one. Why are we in the middle of a lake, in the middle of the night, in the middle of a storm? We're supposed to be on vacation. Why didn't we just stay where we were? They should have left. That was our desolate place. They horned in on it. Why is this? Ha Why am I here? You ever been there? Y'all know the answer to their question, right? Why are they there? If you're taking notes, write it down. The disciples are struggling. This is important. Oh, this, this may be one person. This is, the, this is the only main thing you need to get today. The disciples are struggling specifically because they obeyed Jesus. They're struggling specifically because they're in the center of God's will. They're in the middle of God's will. Why are we in the middle of this lake, in the middle of the night, in the middle of a storm? Because you're in the middle of God's will. You didn't do anything wrong. You're right where God wants you to be. And this blows our mind. Again, if you're taking notes, write the following. Why God leads us into trials is often a mystery, but... When it happens, you say, Jeff, I'm not in that. I'm catching all green lights. Praise the Lord. Enjoy it. But when you're in that time of trial, you better remember these things. God is sovereign. He knows all about this. He designed this thing. You boys get in the boat and get on out of here. Why? You're not coming. I'll catch up with you in a little bit. <laughs> you boys are going to learn some things tonight. God is sovereign. Don't forget this one. You need to remember God loves us. Doesn't feel like it right now. God loves you so much. He has designed a trial to benefit you. We need to remember this. God purposes to teach us things in that trial we will not learn otherwise. 
We need to learn something. God, you are sovereign. I know it. This isn't any fun. You didn't check with me when you put this on. I don't know why I'm here. Why is this happening? I love you. I'm in control. And I've got a purpose for this. Can I add real quickly? Everybody, don't just get that. Hear what I'm about to say. If you're going through life and it's just a struggle and a struggle and a struggle, listen, you're in a trial. Hear, hear me. That's a great time to really evaluate. Am I in the middle of God's will? Don't assume, oh, I'm being persecuted. Oh, I'm in a trial, a, a, a trial of testing of my faith. You may be in a trial of correction, and this is a time. God, are you opposing me because I'm out of your will? If you find that's the reason, then get right with God. Repent, get right with God. But listen, if you can honestly say, I'm, Lord, I'm doing what you said. Here's what you do. You keep obeying. Know that he sees it and know that in his time, he'll come. He'll come. In his time. Look at verse 25 if you want to see an example of God's time. The Bible says in the fourth watch of the night. So they're out there struggling. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. In the fourth watch of the night. Fourth watch. Okay, you got first, second. How many watches are they? How many watches are there? There are four. <laughs> Fourth out of four. Really? Lord, that's the... So you say, what does this mean? The night watch began at 6 p.m., went till 9 p.m. That was the first one. Second watch was 9 p.m. to midnight. Third watch was midnight to 3 a.m. The fourth watch, which is this one, is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. At that time of the year, it, the sun rises around 6.30 at that time of the year in Israel. So they're getting close, but it's not yet sunrise, and it's pretty much the darkest time of the night. And that's when the Lord decides to come. Wiersbe words it this way. He says that Jesus, quote, and here Wiersbe writes that Jesus, quote, may not come, hear me, he may not come at the time we think he should come. Why? Because he knows when we need him the most. He waited until the ship was as far away from the land as possible so that all human hope was gone. If you're taking notes, here's your note from Wearsby. He was testing the disciples' faith, and this meant removing every human prop. I'm going to get you out in the middle of the lake before I come to you. I'm going to let it get just almost daylight before I come to you. I'm going to let it get to the darkest part of the night before I come to you. Something I've noticed to complete that note and add to what Wearsby writes is the following. God stretches our faith. I found this to be true. Like we've said before, out of the bodybuilders build their muscles. God breaks it down, stretches our faith, and then it comes back stronger. And then he stretches it some more, and it comes back stronger. And he stretches it more, and our faith comes back stronger. And he stretches it some more, and here's what happens. Sometimes, not all the time, but every now and then, God stretches our faith like it's almost to the breaking point. But here's what I've learned. God never lets a true Christian's faith snap. Never lets a true. We believe in this doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. We persevere, but it's not because of our doing. We persevere because the Holy Spirit in us and God's will causes us to persevere. The true Christian never loses all of his faith, even though these guys probably think, I'm about to lose faith. I have one thought for you out of verse 26. I won't hit it quickly. Look at it. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. What does that tell you? I had an advantage. I got to read this over and over and over and over and over and over and over this week. 
But if you were to look at that and think and really picture it, that tells me something. I want to be clear. I am not judging the disciples. I am not judging. I'm making an observation that I think is pretty accurate. Their reaction in verse 26 tells me Jesus wasn't in their thoughts. They're struggling. They're not thinking about Jesus. Not one of them is saying, has anybody seen Jesus? Pretty much any time now he ought to be here. Have you spotted him? No, I hadn't seen him yet, but I'm looking for him. Not one of them is thinking that. Let that sink in. They're struggling, struggling. Christ is the farthest thing from their mind. Now, Mark 6, verse 48, adds a little nugget that I'm going to just throw out to you. The Bible says in another gospel that when Christ came, he made as though he would pass by them. He was just going to, here's his, he knows what he's going to do, but the way he's walking is as if he's just going to pass by them over there. And so if they're going this way westward and Jesus was up on this mountain and he comes walking on the sea, obviously he's coming from behind in their blind spot. And so you can kind of picture, if you've ever been out on deep water late at night, you can understand this reaction. You get it, right? They're rowing and maybe somebody's starting, I can't believe why. What? What? And right back, what's wild? This is a ghost. Oh, my. And then you can't hear it 30 yards away. But if you were 10 yards away, you'd hear a bunch of grown men on this boat screaming like girls, like I just did. What? Oh, scared to death. And the Lord, like, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. guys, it, it's me. It, it's I. I am. I am here. Do not fear. Lord, if it's you, it's me. Come down. We, we thought you weren't looking for me. You were so caught up in your struggle, you weren't even thinking about it. I scared you to death. You scared us to death. My last thought on this second point. I just want you to kind of collect verse 25, 26, 27. We need to remember this. We need to remember this. These verses, 25, 26, and 27, show us Hear me, God's proven method of comforting his people. When God's people, this happens to me, it happens to you. When we get overwhelmed by fatigue, when we get overwhelmed by fear, when we get overwhelmed by terror, how does the Lord comfort his people? I see two main things. Do you see them? What does the Lord do? He does two things. Number one, he manifests his presence. Number two, he speaks his words. Got to say it again. How does the Lord bring comfort to his people? This is the time proven. He can do it other ways. But this is over and over what God uses to comfort his people. He manifests it. He's always been there, but he manifests his presence in perceivable ways. And he speaks his words. Guys, I'm just going to tell you. Those two things. I owe my sanity. I owe my perseverance to two things. Three, the Holy Spirit in me, but to the manifest presence. You give me, in a time of trial, you give me the manifest presence of the Lord where I recognize He is here, and then I'm put in touch with His words that apply to my situation. That's powerful. That is powerful. That's how He comforts me. That's how He comforted them. Notice how He manifested His presence. It's going to sound cliche. Because everybody's preached on this, and we all say the same thing. But if I'm ever going to say it, this is the sermon to say it. He didn't walk on water just to show off what he could do. He literally walked on water so that these boys in the boat would see, 
Guys, the thing you fear the most is literally under my feet. Literally under my feet. Graceview individual. What are you afraid of? Like, check your heart. What are you afraid of? The Lord came walking on the water. MacArthur writes it this way. He says the Lord's purpose was to demonstrate His loving willingness to do whatever is necessary to rescue His children. He gave them an unforgettable reminder of the power and extent of His divine protection. The thing you fear the most, I got it under control. I know what's happening to you. Would you notice number three, not only the prominent place of prayer in Christ's life and the power of Christ over our fears. But it's pretty clear, verses 28 to 33, really I'm combining two points. It should be four, but for time's sake, I'm going to tuck the fourth main point at the end of this one. Let's talk about this, the extension of Jesus' power to believers. The extension of Jesus' power to believers. In this case, we could have said the extension of Jesus' power to Peter, but that's just an example of what the Lord is able to do with all believers. I'm not going to do it, but if I were to ask you, raise your hand. Say, I think I know Jeff Bartlett well enough that other than the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament, I think I know his favorite person in the New Testament. Anybody was, I won't, I won't ask you to answer. Some of you say, I think I know who his favorite person other than Jesus is in the New Testament. Anybody think, you know? Okay, if you thought it was the Apostle Paul, then that is correct. I just love the Apostle Paul. He's, he's, to me, he's the man other than Jesus in the New Testament. For my money, the Old Testament, just David is the man, right? There's all these other great ones. There's all these other great ones. So, Jeff, why are you talking about this? Don't discount this fellow right here. Paul's the man. Peter's the man. Peter gets a bad rap sometimes from guys like me who read the Bible and we read sometimes how he's a little hasty and he's a little bit brash and he gets himself in trouble by making these big bold claims and he jumps out without thinking and doing things and he gets in trouble. I don't know what you guys see in verses 28 to 33. Some people actually criticize. I've read that. Some criticize and say, Peter was a man who was guilty of taking unnecessary risk and he paid the price. He was made to look like a fool and he shouldn't have done this. That's not what I see at all. Do you guys see that? Do you see a guy who's in trouble for making unnecessary risks, taking chances? The Lord's response to him doesn't tell me that at all. He's not being rebuked. Well, Jeff, what do you think Peter is like? I'm going to give you my opinion on several things in a quick note. I'm going to condense it. Peter's a great man with, hear me, tremendous faith. I mean, tremendous faith, tremendous courage. The other boys are in the boat. This guy's out in the water. This guy's on the water. (laughs) He has tremendous faith. I'm reading between the lines here, so don't take this as the gospel truth, but I believe there's enough clues in the gospels. And not everybody fits this bill. I don't fit this bill. I think the Bible indicates Peter would be what's called a man's man. I mean, a room full of men, Peter would be the man in the room. He's a fisherman. If he were to be up at the Bering Sea, when those boys all come home and they're hitting the diners and the bars, I believe Captain Peter would be the guy. Nobody messes with him. That's Peter. 
in and of the flesh, he'll jack your jaw up real quick. You just don't mess with that guy. He's, he's tough. He's strong. He's, he's a man's man. What else? He's got a backbone like my uncle. I don't even know what it means. Just, but he's, my uncle used to say, a backbone like a saw log. I don't know what a saw log is. I'm picturing a two by ten up on its side. This guy has a backbone. This guy is a natural leader. How do you know? People are following Peter. People follow Peter. Jesus chose him on purpose. But of all of those things, here's the main thing. If you read the New Testament, you should notice about Peter. This guy loves Jesus deeply. I'm going to say what I have no right to say. This may not be accurate. The impression I get from reading the Gospels is that of all the guys in that boat, none of them love Jesus more than Peter. Peter may love Jesus. Instead of ragging on him for what he did, what if it's just as simple as, Lord, you're over there and I just want to be with you. Can I come where you're at? Come. Come. Well, Jeff, you know he denied the Lord three times. Oh, I know. Where were the other guys when he denied the Lord at Jesus' trial? They were running and hiding, other than John, who had a family connection that allowed him to be there. Look at verse 29. Look at it. Peter said, answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. I think, guys, the Bible is really, really clear. If anybody ever says, well, last I checked, there's only one person who's walked on water, and it's not you. Politely correct them and say, actually, there's two people that's walked on water, and it's not us, right? <laughs> it's not you either, and it's not me. There are two people who have walked on water. Peter did. This is a great man. Peter saw the power of Christ being displayed, and he just wanted, like, I want you to be glorified in my life. I want to see you do powerful things. So he even asks and then he obeys in extreme, radical ways. What person in their right mind would get out of a boat in the middle of a severe wind and wave storm in the middle of the night, in the middle of the lake? No one would do that. But he obeys the Lord. I grew up in the mountains of western North Carolina, and so I grew up on gospel music, what we call southern gospel music. I grew up on quartet music. When I was younger, my absolute favorite quartet was the Cathedral Quartet. And I actually pulled this song up the other day. So if you wonder, hey Jeff, what were you doing about 1230 on Thursday night? Really, Friday morning. I had this blaring in my office ruining my voice trying to hit things that Kurt Talley, the tenor singer, could actually hit. Finally, I had to realize you're going to strip gears and you're not going to be able to preach on Sunday. You've got to stop trying to do this, but I hope the neighbors didn't hear. I was, I mean, as loud as I could yell it. <laughs> There's a song that had to do with this that the cathedrals used to sing. I just want to catch you a lyric. Catch what he says. The songwriter says, the world, so here it is, when we're in a time of storm. The world can only offer two options. Some of you are like, I know that song. And you've got the tune in your head. All right, I'm sorry. Stay with the text. Stay with the lyric. Don't get the tune. The world can only offer two options. Here are the two options. You can sink or you can swim. Did you catch it? Trial, trouble hits. It's, I mean, it's a struggle, man. I'm in a deep trial. What's going to happen? Well, you're either going to sink or you better swim. But the lyric offers there's a third option. Here it is again. 
The world can only offer two options. You can sink or you can swim. But if you walk with the Lord one step at a time, you can walk on the top with him. The world only offers two options. You can sink or you can swim. But if you'll walk with the Lord one step at a time, you can walk on the top with him. I remember my father-in-law about 15 years ago, and I think he was in Colossians. I wish I had his notes because he would always fill his messages with these zingers. And that, I mean, he was a preacher. He's a preacher. And he was preaching on something in Colossians. And I remember him talking about how so many people, when you ask them how they're doing, and you'd hear something like, well, under the circumstances, I guess I'm okay. All right, how are you doing? Well, under the present circumstances, I'm getting by. Well, how are you doing? Well, I guess, I guess under the circumstances, I, I'm, I'm just I'm not doing good. And he alluded to how, in his own way, it didn't come across as sarcastic or anything. It sounded effective. I remembered it. He said, sounds to me like you need to get out from under the circumstances. <laughs> How are you doing? Well, under the circumstance. Well, you need to get out from under the circumstance. What are you doing living under the circumstance? You need to get out from under the circumstances. Write this down. The Lord is calling his people to get out from under the circumstances, live on top of the circumstances with him. How? By faith. Get up here where I'm at. Why are you boys living down there under the circumstances? You're scared to death. You're about to quit. Your faith's about to snap. Get up here where I'm at on top of the circumstances. Boy, he hammered that about 30 minutes. He preached at least as long as I do. And that's where Peter was walking. I want to ask you this morning, where are you walking? Where, are you, where, where did you walk in this morning? You know what a lot of us would have to confess? I literally almost asked you guys to pray for me because I prayed that I would not be distracted because I have this nagging thing going on. And it's wanting to distract me. And praise the Lord, up to this point in this message, it hasn't distracted me until I just now brought it up. So now I've got to put it out of my mind. All right, let's get back on track. But when you walked in, how many of us have to say, I came in under the circumstances? (laughs) I need to get like Peter and be up on top of the circumstances. Here's, Here's the problem. Peter's faith, it quickly failed. It quickly failed. Look at the order because I think it's important. Back up to 29, get a running start to verse 30. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Can you catch the order? It goes something like this. Peter, watch. He recognizes Jesus. He has faith. He hears the call of Christ. He gets out of the boat. This is key. He has his eyes on the Lord. He is walking on the water to the Lord. But then, here's the downfall. Here's the first thing that happened. You said, Jeff, he turned and looked. No, no. He first took his eyes off of Christ. And then he looked at the wind, which we know the effect of the wind is waves. He stops looking at Christ. Here's the order. That was one. Stop looking. He looked at the wave. He put his focus on the wind and the waves. Number three, he became afraid. Number four, he started to sink. I want you to listen. When we become afraid, our faith has been diminished. 
When we become afraid, our faith has been compromised. Our faith is being weakened. Our faith has been diminished. Grace for you. Is there anything in your life you're afraid of? I'm not talking about concern. There's a difference between, Jeff, I've got some things in my life or some things at my business. Or there's some things going on in our state. There's some things going on in our country. Listen, there's a concern and there's a burden. But if you're afraid, I'm just afraid. And the more I, I do that, it makes me more and more afraid. Your faith is being diminished. The moment we start being afraid, our faith is being weakened. And that's what happened with him. And so here comes the Lord and he picks him up. And he asked Peter, I don't know how he asked him. In my mind, I think it was probably something like this. I think it was very burdened and very personal. Peter, why did you doubt? No, really. Really, why did you doubt? I, I, I saw the wave. Peter, you were doing it. Do you understand there's nothing in that water, of that wave, that was any different than the water you were already walking on? Why did you stop believing? Why did you doubt? Why did you, why did you doubt? Obviously, I shouldn't have. Why did you doubt? I wonder how many Christians, I'm talking about true Christians. I'm not talking about stony ground hearers who make a show and leave and never come back. I wonder how many Christians today have drifted from the Lord, but because they're true Christians, they will come back. And as they come back to the Lord, they need to ask and answer this question to themselves. Why did I start doubting? One more quote from MacArthur. He writes the following. We need to hear this warning. He says, when we get frustrated, anxious, bewildered, and frightened, Satan tempts us to wonder why God allows such things to happen to his children. And here's the warning. We need to hear this. If we keep our attention on those things, we will begin to sink just as surely as Peter. Where's our attention? So it's time for me to circle back. I started out talking about private prayer. And so as I'm reading this, the Lord made it pretty clear by the end of the text, as important as private prayer is, Jeff, you'd better come back because now we need to talk about its vital complement. Everybody with me? We have corporate prayer and there's private, just you, solitude, stillness, silence, just you and the Lord. Nothing in the Christian life is more important than that. But there is a vital complement that goes with private prayer that I, the Lord spoke to me like, you saw what happened to Peter. You know the problem, right? It's the same problem you have in your life, Jeff. And so the Lord pointed this out. I've confessed to you guys before. Of corporate prayer, that's us praying together, very, very hard to do. Very hard to do. That's the hardest one because it's hard to concentrate in a group. It's just hard, but we're commanded to do it, so we do it. Then there's daily fellowship, and then there's private prayer. For me, this is me. I have been stronger of those three. I have been strongest in daily private prayer, and I've not been as strong in the daily fellowship. Though, to his credit, the Lord is... Forcing some circumstances in my life that are forcing me to be more fellowship-oriented in my day. Let me read a quick note. Here's where I'm heading. 
I am usually stronger at prayer closet prayer than daily fellowship. Sometimes, this is me, I'll finish private prayer with strong faith in God, believing nothing can thwart the plan of God. Nothing can thwart the will of God. I mean, I get up from that, and it's just like my love is high, joy is high, peace is high, faith is high. Yes, but here's what I find. If I do not quickly quickly couple that with ongoing fellowship and continued focus on the Lord. That's called daily fellowship prayer. If I don't quickly take prayer closet prayer and marry it to daily fellowship prayer, here's what I'll find. Give it just a little bit of time. Love starts waning. Faith starts coming down. Joy gets gone. Peace gets gone. You've got to keep it going. Peter started out well, but he didn't finish. He didn't keep the continued focus and direction on the Lord. You know what I find? I can come out of a private time of prayer. Literally, I've had days. I won't say what will cause it. I've had days within seconds, like it's undone everything. I did. Like, what? And now I'm thrown into a bad mood all of a sudden, just that fast. Sometimes it's like, oh, what's going on? Ah. Like, oh, what happened to the victory you had just well? Well, that, that's gone. I've compartmentalized that. That won't work. That's how you end up sinking. Another thing I noticed is this. Do y'all know what being filled? Somebody alluded to this. Do y'all know what being filled with the Spirit means? Filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit means that a Christian surrenders to the Lord. Surrenders to the Holy Ghost to use their body. To be filled with the Spirit means that that person is literally being carried along through life. Literally this person is being controlled. They're being empowered. So be clear, hear me. All Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. All Christians have the Holy Spirit in them. But not all Christians are filled with the Spirit. That's a moment by moment by moment thing. I'm afraid there are many Christians who've never known what it's like to be filled with the Spirit. But those who have, we all must confess Unfortunately, that does not describe and define our life as much as it should, not nearly as much as it should. Why is that? Because we're like Peter. We don't just stay in it. We don't stay focused on the Lord. We don't intentionally stay consciously surrendered to the Holy Spirit, inviting Him to work through us, inviting Him to empower and control. It literally is a moment by moment. It is so easy to get, be in it and then get out of it and not come and compartmentalize that to certain times of the day or to certain days of the week. And we become like Peter. Just a few more thoughts. Look at verse 30, 31. Peter's faith is failing, but thankfully, when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out. Thankfully, even though his faith is going down, 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 Peter had enough faith to remember, enough history with the Lord to remember, to call out to the Lord, help me. And you know what he found? The Lord Jesus Christ is capable. He's capable. Now, I want to share my opinion, so I want to be really, really clear. What I'm about to say is my opinion. You will not find this in the Bible, so don't just take it in and, you know, hook, line, and sinker as part of your automatic theology. I'm offering it. Again, I couldn't point to a text. It's really just like a, a sense that I have. It's kind of like how man's man, right? It's coupled with that. What if, I believe this is the case. I, I don't know why, I just think it was the case. What if Peter was physically bigger than Jesus? 
This is not blasphemy. What if Peter was humanly stronger than Jesus? He's a fisherman. He's a carpenter. You say, you think Jesus was weak? Oh, no, 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 no. Jesus was strong. He ran a bunch of people from their money with a whip by himself. These people love their money. And he ran them out of the temple. So he's no little wimpy guy. He's strong. But what if Peter, in their interactions, you know, they're doing things. Peter's here. He's kind of, he got some arms on him here. <laughs> That's my Lord. Yeah, I love that man. But Peter's. If that is the case, we know that Jesus has reserves and levels of power that Peter doesn't have. And my mind just wonders as Peter starts to sink and he cries, Lord, help me. Did the Lord just reach down with his human power and Peter's still here and he's kind of struggling, looking at the water? Or did he kick it in that other gear? Help! And like a hydraulic, like a crane. Like, what in, the, and in his mind? How are you? Like, why did you doubt? Obviously, I shouldn't. I saw the wave. Like, how are you doing? Being carried by you is like standing on a rock. You're like a rock. How are you doing this? This is awesome. Listen, it is humiliating for a grown man to be carried by another man. Peter's going to get carried back to the boat. And he's humiliated. And I wonder what the look on his face, though, when he's brought up. And he's simultaneously, you say he can't have both, simultaneously humiliated and yet exhilarated like, you are awesome. This is embarrassing. I've got egg all over my face. You guys got to feel that. He is standing. On, we see it. He's standing. And there he puts Peter in the boat. I'm going to just read for time's sake. I wrote this yesterday morning. This may be the most important part for somebody. I'm going to read it. You need to pay attention. Previously, Jesus used his words to rebuke the storm and make it stop. Y'all remember that one? They're out on the sea. He's asleep. Lord, wake up. Don't you care that we're dying? We're perishing here. What's the... Jesus wakes up, goes out to the front, tells the sea and the, and the wind and the storm and the waves. He literally, hush! Be still. And there isn't like this. Wow, look what he did. No, it's hush, be still. You boys have little faith. And he goes back to the back. Their reaction then was real quiet. Not saying a lot, whisper. Man, he's strong. Let me read it again. Previously, Jesus used his words to rebuke the storm and make it stop. But this time, he reveals his strength to withstand and to rise above it, undeterred, while it continues. 
This illustrates to us what he does in our life. Sometimes he calms the storms of our lives by the power of his will. Other times he becomes our sure foundation and our strong shelter in the midst of it while it rages on. But as we continue to rely on him, that's what he does in this. That time he calmed the storm. This time Peter's just being carried by a rock. Like, wow, you're strong. You've got this under control. Verse 32. Let's touch on it quickly. Two things actually happened. Mark, Matthew only gives us one. So when they, Peter and Jesus, got into the boat, this is literally a miracle. The wind ceased. This time, no words. Just getting in the boat. Same thing happened last time. The wind ceased. If you're taking notes, write it down. I can't develop it for time's sake. Since Christ's purpose for the wind was accomplished... He made it stop. Storm, you're done. He doesn't even say it. He just wills it. It's over. Storm is over. But I told you to put you a marker back over in John that we would return there. And so I'm going to return there if you want to just flip over there. There's just a little phrase I want you to see because John gives us a piece of information that is not included in Matthew. But it is literally another part of the miracle. John chapter chapter 6, look at verse number 21. Very short version. John doesn't tell us about Peter. Neither does Mark tell us about Peter's excursion. They do a shortened version. Usually Matthew is the short one. This time Matthew was the elongated account. But verse 20 of of John 6 says, But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Now watch what John adds. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. Oh, Matthew had that. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So he comes, we put the two together, he comes into the boat, the wind ceases, which means the waves stop, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now that tells me something, hold on, I'm doing my math, so apparently, let me get it here, for the last nine hours plus, they've gone three miles, three to four miles, and they go the last three miles Instantly. Instantly. Well, what effect does that have? Verse 33. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Truly you are the Son of God. You guys understand it? Jesus gets in the boat. They're in the middle of the sea. The storm immediately stops. And all of a sudden, what was that? We're stuck in the sand. Where are we at? We're on the western shore. And the word worship, what it literally means is they bowed. And they started praising and worshiping. Truly you're the son of God. You are the son of God. Why did they come to this conclusion? Think of their last 12 hours. Here's their last 12 hours. They saw Jesus feed 15, 20, 25,000 people with five loaves and two fish. They know that he commanded 20-some thousand people to leave and go home, and they obeyed. He walked on the water. He made Peter walk on the water. His just presence in the boat made the wind cease. And all of a sudden, they went three or four miles without any time elapsing as they instantly arrive on the western shore. You must be the Son of God. I close with these thoughts. Look at verse 33. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. I'm going to ask you, do not let this confession 
cause you to think, wow, they're theologians now. They finally get it. No, no, no. Please understand. They don't understand the full thing. These guys do not yet know what Matthew now knows when he writes this decades later. They do not yet know what Peter will know when he writes 1st and 2nd Peter, what John will know when he writes the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in the book of Revelation. Their theology has a long way to go, but here's where they're at. They've heard this same confession at Jesus' baptism. Somebody said that he's the Son of God. Who was that? God the Father, his voice. These, some of these guys were present and they heard, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. They've heard this same phrase over and over and over as Jesus is casting demons out of people and these demons start confessing, what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth, O thou son of God? Why do they keep, that's what the, Jesus keeps referring to this relationship with the Father as though it's unique and special. This is their first time. They've got a long way to go, but they're getting there. They're getting there. Starting to come around. A few weeks earlier, he calms the storm with just his words, and their response is reverential awe, reverential fear, quietness, and it was proper. This time, feeds 20-some thousand people, disperses 20-some thousand people, walks on the water, makes Peter walk on the water, calms the wind and the waves, makes us arrive where we were not instantly. This time, they are just lavishing out on their knees, on their face. They didn't even get out on the sand, literally on their face, in the boat. Truly, you are the Son of God. So verse 33 tells me this. They are clearly growing in their knowledge of Christ. They're growing. They got a ways to go. Them acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God, again, doesn't mean they understand at all that that entails. Neither do we. But they're a lot further along than they were days before. They're growing in their knowledge of God. So I want to ask you this. Are you growing in your knowledge of God? We've got some new Christians, fairly new Christians in the house. Some are watching online. If you're a new Christian, be honest. Are you growing in your knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in your knowledge of God the Father, in your knowledge of the Holy Spirit, your experience with Him? Are you growing in your understanding? Hear me. Are you growing in your love? You say, well, Jeff, I'm not a new Christian. Okay. Jeff, I've been saved 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Heard lots of sermons, lots better than this one. Well, praise the Lord. Can I ask you something? You say, oh, time out, Jeff. I'm not bragging. I teach the Bible to people. Awesome. That's great. Can I ask you something? Can all of us say, I'm growing in my knowledge of Christ? Let's be more specific. When was the last time that you were made aware of something Or reminded of something about the Lord that so overwhelmed you that it compelled you to just break forth in praise and worship. I might be mistaken, and I'd hate to embarrass him. I dare say Mike got something this week. Did y'all catch that? He read something, and it, it hit him. And he's still feeling the effects of it days later. 
for you, you, said, you may be sitting there saying, Jeff, the other day there was this song, and I, I hadn't heard it since the 1990s or since the early 2000s, or I've never heard it before, but man, it got me. Or I was reading my Bible, or I was here the other day, and there was just one little thing that was said, and it really it was a throwaway thought in your mind, but God just, you just and I just found myself, Lord, you are awesome. When was the last time, if you're struggling, you need to beg God, God, I am not looking at you. Lord, I'm closed. I think I've arrived. I'm not doing the proper things. I'm not spending time with you. Lord, cause me to be overwhelmed with your goodness. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Just before I pray, I want to ask you these questions. Just before we pray. Would you hang with me? Really let the Holy Spirit evaluate your life. With this text as our backdrop, Ask the Lord to speak to you, even through these evaluating diagnostic questions. Number one, let me start here. How is your prayer life? Knowing the Lord knows your very thoughts, and so no reason to lie to yourself. You're not actually answering to me. How is your prayer life, your personal, more specific, how is your private prayer time? Do you have private? Well, Jeff, I, I, I pray in my morning commute. That's awesome. How's your private, total attention on Christ, undistracted prayer life? But maybe you're saying, Jeff, that's consistent. God meets with me. I have true God encounters. It's every morning or it's every night or it's at a certain time. How's your daily fellowship with the Lord? How's mine? How's our prayer life? Jesus longed to talk to the Father. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this. Don't raise your hands. I'm just wondering, because I know this is true. I know it's a fact of some folks. I can name some folks in this room. You're in a trial. But I may not know about you, so I'm going to ask you, are you currently in a trial of life? You're in a struggle. You're just like... Jeff, life's a struggle right now. Can I invite you to do the very first thing? The first step, would you evaluate, am I in God's will? Am I struggling out of God's will and he's disciplining me to correct me? Or is he disciplining me to grow me? Which is it? If you're not in God's will and you're like, Man, everything's just opposing me and I'm feeling more and more hemmed in. It's getting tighter and tighter. Repent. Turn back to the Lord. Do it now, right where you're sitting. Tone me out. Tune into the Father. Repent. But if you're in a trial and you're saying, Jeff, I, I'm not perfect, but in the main, I'm, I'm in God's will, then can I just encourage you? Keep on obeying. Keep trusting His love. Know that he loves you. Know that he's wise. Know that he's sovereign. Know that he has purposes. And know that he has power to deliver when it's his time. Once you know that, then why don't you just turn it to prayer and say, Lord, since I'm in this trial and you're going to teach me something, Father, help me learn it while I'm in it. Help me to learn the lessons, all of them that you want to give me.
If you're in a trial this morning, I got to ask, are your spiritual eyes on Jesus or are they on the struggle and the trial? Be honest. Are you still focused on Christ? Here's your sign. If you're starting to get afraid and fearful, worn down, beat down, then you're not focused on Christ. Ask the Father for faith. God, would you give me faith to live with Christ above the circumstances? Is anyone here this morning without raising your hand, anybody crippled by fear? Just crippled. Ask God, God, would you forgive me of my sin? I've been doubting you. And then, Lord, would you restore my faith as I focus fresh and new on Christ? And then go ahead and let's finish right here. Father, while I'm focusing on Christ, would you give me fresh, brand new reasons that just overwhelm me and compel me to worship you from my heart, holding nothing back. Let's pray together. Father, you know where everyone here listening right now, everyone at home, you know exactly what we're going through. Lord, you know the struggle I've had in preparing this this week. Lord, you know my confession that nothing good will come out of this message if it's up to me. And so, Lord, I pray that you would overpower my shortcomings and that your word, even in this story of a voyage about a storm that ultimately saw Jesus walk on water, Father, would you just cause your people to be encouraged and strengthened? Lord, let us admire the great faith of Peter, but Lord, let us learn from his downfall by taking his eyes off of Christ. And so, Father, I pray that the one that's in the struggle, that's bewildered, that's tired and fatigued and frightened would not focus on those things, but Lord, just trust you and your love and live in the safest place to be, even if it's in the middle of a lake, in the middle of the night, in the middle of a storm, in the middle of your will. Let us be in the middle of your will. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. A little different message this morning, but I pray the Lord will speak to you as you go back and even revisit the text this week. Have a great week. Thank you for coming.